0: Welcome to the Jesus Chronicles, your crash course about the world-transforming life of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Sandy Laws. This is episode number six. Last time I talked about Luke's version of the Nativity story. Only two of the four Gospel writers... Luke and Matthew record this story, and they tell their stories from two different points of view, each including unique details about the birth of Jesus. Luke's story is told from the perspective of Mary, and Matthew's version, which I'll tell you about in the next episode, is told from the perspective of Joseph. Now Luke's version began with that really interesting story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember that Zechariah had had a visit from the angel Gabriel and he told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would have a son. That's where I left off, so let's continue with Luke's story. Luke Chapter 1 The Story of Mary Zechariah was struck dumb by the angel Gabriel, he and Elizabeth went back home to whatever town they lived in, somewhere in the Judean hills. Fast forward six months, and once again, Gabriel comes from heaven to earth as God's messenger. This time, Gabriel goes to Nazareth with a message for a young woman living there. Here is Luke's story of what happened from Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. All right, so to begin with, Luke establishes a timeline of the events. It is six months after Elizabeth and Zechariah conceived their miracle child. God sends Gabriel to Nazareth, To give a message to Mary. Luke specifically says that Mary was a virgin, engaged to Joseph, but not yet married. By telling us this, Luke is tying this event back to the Isaiah prophecy I talked about in episode number one. Let's keep going. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So Gabriel is speaking to Mary, telling her that she is highly favored and that God is with her. Just like Zachariah, Mary is troubled by the appearance of Gabriel. And I have to say that I think her reaction seems totally normal I mean, I think I would be completely freaked out if Gabriel just suddenly appeared to me. I mean, it would be great, but also kind of scary. All right, so let me keep going. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, this is the message that Gabriel was sent to deliver. He tells her not to be afraid and that she is highly favored or graced by God. Now, let me interject this about Mary. She was not chosen by God because she possessed some particular piety or holiness that others did not have. In fact, the text suggests quite the opposite. It suggests that Mary was an ordinary young woman living in Nazareth. The emphasis on this event is not Mary, but on God's sovereign choice. I mean, and to me, that's a very important distinction. But Mary certainly wouldn't be alone in what was about to happen. God would be with her during her extraordinary life journey. As for Zechariah, Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to have a son and that she is to name him Jesus. Gabriel gives Mary a five-fold description of her son giving us a real glimpse into the character of Jesus. This is what he says. First, Jesus will be great. His greatness stands in contrast to the rest of humanity. His greatness is absolute. Now, you might remember in the last episode that Gabriel also said that John the Baptist would be great. But there there is a caveat about John's greatness. John's greatness is qualified. He is great in the sight of the Lord. John is not absolutely great the way that Jesus is. So you see, Jesus and John are alike, but also very different. Second, Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. Now boil that down, and this phrase means that Jesus is the Son of God. The phrase Most High is a circumlocution for God. Once again, Jesus is shown to be greater than John. John is described as a prophet of the Most High by Gabriel, whereas Jesus is described as the Son of the Most High. Now third, God the Father will give Jesus the throne of his ancestor, King David. Back in episode 1, I said that Jeremiah prophesied that Jesus would be born a king. This confirms that prophecy. Fourth, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This depicts Jesus as king and also as the long-awaited Messiah. Thus, like David, Jesus is the king of Israel. The term house of Jacob was a traditional term, To describe Israel. Fifth, Jesus's kingdom will never end. The kingdom of God is realized in the coming of Jesus, and it will be consummated at the second coming of Jesus. It will continue forever. Now after hearing all of this, Mary responds by asking a simple question. How will this be since I am a virgin? excellent question. Remember that when Zachariah asked Gabriel a similar question, he was struck mute? But that doesn't happen here. So we can assume that Mary's question did not demonstrate the same kind of doubt that Zacharias did. There is no rebuke from Gabriel. I mean, maybe Gabriel had more sympathy for her since she was a very young, naive girl And Zechariah was a priest who knew the Torah well. So Gabriel simply explains to Mary how the unexplainable will happen. He says this, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now Gabriel's response details The physical and spiritual mechanics of how a virgin becomes pregnant with the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Compare this to John the Baptist. John was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. So once again we see some differences between the two conception stories. The Holy Spirit's conception of Jesus results in him being called holy or divine from the beginning of his earthly journey. Thus, Jesus is both God and man. Now, Gabriel continues, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now Mary's demure response to Gabriel shows her total submission to the will of God. After her encounter with Gabriel, Mary is eager to visit her relative Elizabeth. No doubt seeing Elizabeth will confirm to Mary what Gabriel told her. Luke records what happened when Mary showed up to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth's baby boy leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Luke. Elizabeth then tells Mary that she knows that Mary is already with child and is blessed by God. Mary responds by reciting a song of praise, known as the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. I love Mary's song. Everything about it is just so majestic and and beautiful. Well, here's a question that is frequently considered by Bible scholars. Did Mary actually compose this beautiful song? I was curious about that because the song does feel very weighty and pointed, full of references to the Old Testament. And my research reveals that many scholars do believe that this was actually composed by Mary. And so do I. Now just because Mary was poor and not formally educated, doesn't mean she wasn't creative. And this song clearly came from a creative mind. And even though Mary didn't go to religious school, she most certainly heard the Torah spoken in the synagogue her entire life. In ancient times, people absorbed much more of the spoken word, especially the biblical word, than we do today. She's paraphrasing Old Testament literature, something she would have known very well. Lastly, we don't know if Mary composed this beautiful song on the spot or reflected on the event and composed the song later. Remember how I mentioned that Luke may have met with Mary to hear her story? This poem may be a part of what she shared with Luke after having the time to reflect on her life and the life of her son, Jesus. My thought about Mary's portrait of Jesus is this. Even from the womb, the type of leader that Jesus would become stands in stark contrast to Israel's earthly rulers, particularly King Herod and his sons. Now Mary stays with Elizabeth for several months more, but Luke doesn't tell us whether or not Mary is present when Elizabeth gives birth. Luke chapter two, the birth of Jesus. Hey, guess what? We finally arrived at the story of Jesus's birth. This is where Luke tells the actual story of Jesus being born. So with no further delay, let me read you the story from Luke chapter two. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now let's break it down in the order of how Luke tells it. He begins with the timing, because remember that he wanted to create a detailed account of what happened. Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, but notice he doesn't tell us anything about the month or the day. Caesar orders an empire-wide census that requires people to return to their town of origin to register. Now an empire-wide census would have taken years to complete. Because there were about 45 million people living in the Roman Empire. I mean, to put this event into modern terms, think of what would happen if everyone in California had to return to their state or country of their origin to register for the census. No doubt that would take a really long time to accomplish. Now, Caesar would have used the results of the census to gauge the size of his empire, but also for taxation purposes. This census sets into motion the familiar story of Mary and Joseph going to Joseph's ancestral home, the town of Bethlehem. Luke tells us that Bethlehem is the town of King David and that Joseph is a descendant of David's. He wants to be very certain to establish the royal lineage of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem which is about five miles from Jerusalem. It's very close to Jerusalem. Now next Luke describes the timing of the birth. He writes this, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Uh, Let me just stop and dissect this very simple sentence about the timing of Jesus's birth. Now first the phrase while they were there is super ambiguous. It really doesn't give us any information about how far along Mary was when they went to Bethlehem. She may have given birth to Jesus shortly after arriving in Bethlehem, or it could have been months later. So this image we have in our mind of Mary and Joseph rushing into Bethlehem when she is in active labor really isn't supported by Luke's text, but it sure does make for some good drama in the movies. Now, Mary gives birth to Jesus and wraps him in strips of cloth or a swaddle and places him in a manger. In Greek, the word is katin, a manger or a feeding trough for animals. And this just begs the question in my mind of where exactly did Mary give birth to Jesus? Luke writes that Mary placed Jesus in a manger quote, because there was no guest room available for them, end quote. And in our modern culture, this phrase is often translated as, because there was no room in the end. And that conjures up an image of Mary and Joseph going from inn to inn throughout Bethlehem, trying to find a room for rent where Mary can give birth. But, as is always the case, context is king when it comes to interpreting biblical text. The Greek word here used for inn is kataluma, which also can be translated as guest room. I'm here to tell you that the use of the word kataluma in this particular place is much more likely to mean a guest room than a room at an inn. Inns, as we know them, were extremely uncommon in Israel, and they typically were only used by shady sorts of people. Not to mention that Bethlehem, though close to Jerusalem, was not a large town frequented by travelers. Instead, cultural tradition would lead us to assume that Joseph had made arrangements for them to stay in a home with his relatives or friends. By the way, I do have an illustration of a first century house on my website if you're interested to see what they most likely looked like. It's on the episode number four page. Now, because houses were small, the reality is that there most likely wasn't a private space in the home where they were staying, where Mary could be in labor and give birth to her child. Instead, Mary and Joseph chose to deliver Jesus in the lower level of the house, which housed the owner's animals. This would have been a more private space than the upstairs communal space. It's also worth noting that Luke doesn't mention any animals being present at the time Mary gives birth. Animals found their way into the nativity story at a later date because it was just assumed that they were there. I have to say that people often find what I just told you as surprising I think it's because we have this preconceived notion in our head that placed Mary and Joseph in this sort of dilapidated stable out in a field somewhere, or maybe a cave in the hills outside of Bethlehem. I mean, that image has been ingrained in our brains by the media. I mean, Christmas cards, Christmas books, holiday movies, holiday merchandise, kind of all perpetuate this false imagery and narrative about where Jesus was born. I mean, sometimes we just have to bust a myth to get to the truth. Now, Luke next shifts the story from the place where Jesus was born to nearby fields and the shepherds who were tending their flocks. Let's take a closer look at the life of a shepherd and discover why they were the first to know about the birth of Jesus. Shepherds spent most of their time in the monotonous work of guarding their flocks. They lived lives of isolation because of the nature of their work. They were dirty, having to live outdoors most of the year. They were not highly regarded in Israel because they couldn't keep the Sabbath. They couldn't leave their flocks to go to the synagogue. The shepherd's job was done with simple equipment, a heavy cloak, a rod and a staff, A bag for food, and a sling. Some shepherds use dogs to help manage their flocks. Shepherding was an exacting calling. A shepherd must find grass and water in a dry and stony land, protect his charges from weather, and from other wild animals. He had to retrieve stray animals. He could be held financially responsible if any sheep were lost. Ideally, the shepherd would be strong, devoted, and selfless, as many of them were. Luke's reference to shepherds comes just after Mary has given birth to Jesus somewhere in Bethlehem. It is evening, and the shepherds and their flocks are nearby in the field. They are on night duty, guarding their animals from other wild animals and from human poachers. This is what Luke writes about the shepherds in chapter 2. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. First, an angel appears to the shepherds. This may very well have been Gabriel, who features so prominently in our story. The angel's appearance is accompanied by a blazing light, The glory of the Lord, Luke calls it. This most definitely signals the presence of the divine. Naturally, the shepherds were terrified, but Gabriel says to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Now, some people wonder why. Why the shepherds in the fields were the first to know about the birth of Jesus? To me, this is just another example of how God decides when, where, and how to insert himself into our world. In his infinite wisdom, God decided to pick the shepherds to be the very first to know about the good news of Jesus, and he did it out of love. God loves the lowly, and his message to them Was that Jesus was here now to be a savior to all. Well here's what happens next. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. This phrase a great company of the heavenly host means a virtual army of angels came from heaven to praise God for the birth of Jesus. They sing out in unison, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. I mean, this had to have been totally awesome to witness. The shepherds are now standing together in the field as the only witnesses to this massive angelic display. I just love this part of the story. And now back to it. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, They spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Okay, so the shepherds hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And after their visit with the Holy Family, they collectively spread the word about Jesus and what they had seen. Now here's what's so interesting about this story, in my mind. As an adult, Jesus claimed to be the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He also tells a parable about lost sheep and compares the shepherd's practices of separating sheep and goats to what will happen on the Day of Judgment. In a well-known verse in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now Luke concludes the Nativity story with this very sweet image about Mary. He says that Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. To me, this specific sentence sounds very much like it came directly from Mary. All right, well there is a bit more to the story worth talking about, and I'll do that in the next episode. I just want to bring a couple of things to your attention about Luke's story so far. What it means to us today. I see clearly how Luke is tying together John and Jesus comparing and contrasting their stories, yet Luke makes it clear that Jesus is superior to John in every way, just as Jesus is superior to all of us, and that's simply because he is divine. I love Luke's portrayal of Mary. Through Mary's song we learn a lot about Jesus and about her, It is clear that Jesus cares about Mary and that she is indeed a very special person and is rewarded for her faithfulness with an elevated status for all times. It's also clear from Mary's song that Jesus came to earth to turn upside down the world order. We'll see a lot of how that happens as we follow Jesus as an adult in future episodes. Also, I am in wonder at how very ordinary the birth of Jesus was, and yet how vastly extraordinary. Mary goes into labor and gives birth to her oldest son while staying with family members in Bethlehem. Jesus comes into the world in the exact same way that every person does, and that just connects him to all of us. Yet the appearance of the heavenly host to the shepherds certainly signals the importance of his birth. In heaven, the angels and God celebrated his birth. From the very first breath of life, Jesus was unique. He was and is the Chosen One, the Most High, the Messiah. We should not forget the majesty of his birth. But incorporate it into our thinking each year at Christmas time. Next time on the JC. Next time on the JC, I'll finish up Luke's version of the Nativity story and move on to Matthew's version. I think it's really good to know them both. The Jesus Chronicles is written and produced by Sandy Laws. It is edited by Stacy Sepp. Check out my website, www.thejesuschronicles.org. Thanks for listening.